You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive. She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew? From the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you. The gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? My next guest I met at Comic-Con, dressed up as Johnny Depp's iconic Mad Hatter. Chad Evett is a L.A.-based costume designer and replicator. His work includes epic rap battles of history, robot chicken, and recently Queer for Fear, a history of queer horror. He's also the top hat in the League of Hatters, a Mad Hatter cosplay group that gathers at Comic-Cons across the country, though it's not uncommon to find him sharing his knowledge and moderating panels, to my shock and awe, out of costume. The iconic characters he has replicated for cosplay are literally too numerous to list, and even harder to pick a favorite amongst. Check out his Instagram, at Chad Hatter, to see these marvelous creations of what I believe is a true master milliner. I'm thrilled to have you on the show, Chad. Thanks for making the time for us. I'm really excited to have you to uh, chat about all things Alice. Your aspirations were to come out here to become a costume designer. That's right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I remember the stories that you told me and the will that it took to to get out here and the struggles to get out here. And um, I I deeply admired the fight that you put up to make it out here. And then once you were here, the struggle to find your way and to do the work that you really felt, seemed to me that you felt destined to do. 
um, which is create amazing costumes and work with super uh, talented people. Um, But I'm, which I want you to tell that story because I think it's remarkable. And then I want to go back and know where all this creative inspiration comes from. We, we started off today talking about like the pain of introspection and now you're going to make me do more of it. (laughs) I, I, I really am. I really am because you know, um, that, that, uh, humanity of, of, you know, the growth through the fear and the difficulties is somewhat very similar to Alice in Wonderland and what Alice goes through. Um, and which is why thematically I relate to the book so much that search for identity and, you know, when you're young and you have kind of dreams of what you think you want to be, and then those get stifled and another door opens up and there's another set of dreams and then there's obstacles. And then it's, what are the obstacles I have to overcome? And, um, I thought it was pretty powerful. The, um, obstacles you had to overcome, uh, well, and it was the, uh, Alice is, it's a fascinating piece of literature because for a story that is so straightforward, the amount of analogy you can pull out of it, the amount of, I mean, you, you mentioned the, uh, the idea of doors opening and there's a moment in the book where she's literally trapped in a hallway of doors, you know, and uh, none of them will, will open except for this one that she physically cannot get through. And so it's that looking at that as kind of a framework. Um, I grew up in an incredibly small town where being a person who is riddled with imagination, you spend a lot of time creating a reality of your own, which also lends itself to the idea of Alice. Mm -hmm. And as you get older, the people around you sort of, they sort of start to lose their magic um, because for a lot of grownups, they just, they forget, you know, Roald Dahl has spoken at length about what it is like for most adults to forget what it was like to be a child. And for those few of us who retain that, that presents, you know, a series of challenges trying to deal with reality. Um, yeah. And that's what Lewis Carroll was writing about too, right? I mean, there was part of his writing about um, the idea that uh, adults lose that childhood imagination, that ability to see through a child's eyes. And uh, he was making fun of adults so we could look back and see how powerful those childhood eyes can be. Well, and it's interesting. You look at the way kids behave as grownups and you think, oh, they're so, they're so small and ridiculous, but children look at grownups and think, oh, they're so big and ridiculous. (laughs) And it's, it's, it's latching on to a piece of that insanity and finding a way to harness yourself to it and then make it work. Where I grew up, um, being incontrovertibly different is bad, you know, Mm -hmm. um, so I wasn't really able to find work. I wasn't able to make money. I wasn't able to do the things that one normally does when you're trying to move forward in life. And so be, growing up poor, growing up in this, you know, incredibly rural area, I, I wanted to come to LA. I knew I belonged here. And the question became how to get here. And <laughs> I, I knew I wanted to play dress up for a living. I wanted to work <laughs> in film. I wanted to do these things. And you can't do that in a small town. So I, I thought, okay, 
you know, there's this, there's a, a beautiful moment in Hamilton where in the musical where um, they're taught they, this, one of the songs talks about how Alexander Hamilton was in this situation that he couldn't figure his way out of. And he looked at what his strengths were and his strength was his intelligence and his writing. And he said, okay, I will write my way out. And he did. And so at, at minimum, that was what I did. I said, okay, I can play dress up. I can create, how can I use that to get me out of here? And I leaned into it. And the only way that I made it to California was I won a costume contest online and I won a custom pair of Nike shoes for the movie Paranorman because every time Leica does a, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but every time they do a, a film, they always do a tie-in with Nike. And I think they, it was something to the effect of they only made like four pairs of this particular shoe in a size 12, which is what I wear. And so I was able to hold on to them for a couple years and then hawk them. I sold them for like an obscene amount of money. And that was what got me here. So the, the you know, it's Ray, Bra I, God, I am just made of quotes. Ray Bradbury said <laughs> that he jumps off the cliff and he builds his wings on the way down. And that was what I did. I sort of, you know, came out here without a plan other than I want to create, I want to make art, I want to tell stories. How can I do that? And, um, Within a month of being here, I found myself frequenting your house and then becoming kind of swept up in, you know, the world of Frank Bador and, and you know, Alice with a Y. And, uh, you know, the, I, I don't want to say the rest is history, but in within months of being here, I was working with Whoopi Goldberg. And that's that's not something that happens to everyone who comes to L.A. <laughs> and is here for two months, you know. Well, we it's had rare. that we had that uh, amazing connection through through Alice, and then the idea of creativity and you know wanting to escape. I, I was in a small town as well, and it didn't seem like I could do the things I wanted to do. I couldn't create, um, and I I needed a bigger canvas just because it felt so stifling, and so um, I, I think I saw that I saw that in you as well, and and but. Not only were you, you know, able to uh, talk about these costumes, but, you know, you're incredibly well read. You're a really talented writer, which I've been insisting and hoping that you would, you know, be able to calm yourself and sit down. I don't think that's going to happen because <laughs> you are, you, there's, there's too much there's too much going on in your orbit uh, for that quiet time. But, uh, you know, maybe one day. I mean, I, I'm going to interrupt you. I just acquired a laptop and I've never had one before. No. Yeah. I, I haven't touched a computer since 2014. I've done everything on my phone. And I, I got a, a secondhand Chromebook for 200 bucks from a friend of mine that she never used it. She got it for work and then something happened with the job where she ended up with another one and she never used this one. And I actually spent the bulk of a couple of days ago the bulk of an entire day with a, a large pot of tea next to me, just going through and transferring all of the notes for all the story ideas and the several thousand words I've already written of my first book, the one that I told you about. I'm not mm -hmm. going to say anything here because it'll create two problems. One will be spoilers and two, it will uh, hold me accountable and we can't have that. <laughs> so, but I got all of it into this, into this Chromebook and I'm uh, Sunday today is today. For those of you listening today is Friday, but Sunday I'm driving to Colorado and I'm going with a friend specifically so that he can drive the bulk of the 17 hours there. So I can sit in the passenger side and write because I'll be in a confined space. I won't be running around. 
um, I can control the volume of things <laughs> and I can just sit there and get everything down. So it's, it's finally happening, Frank. Well, well, I, I just worry about car sickness and it's like, oh, well, I, I worked at it for 20 minutes and I got car sick. And, and for that, I have Dramamine. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, well, you know, I think the story ideas and the way that you describe them are, uh, are excellent. That's why I've, I'm, I'm really curious to see how it comes out on the page. So, uh, but you know, let's, let's go back to, uh, uh, working together because, uh, you know, we, we did a lot of fun things together. I mean, you are, uh, an expert promoter by the way. So it wasn't just the costumes. It's like, okay, how are we going to promote stuff? And you dressed up as uh, Johnny Depp's Mad Hatter and took my books and and then you wrapped them in these beautiful presentations and then you went to um to Comic-Cons and to bookstores and gave them to the buyers in hopes that they would, you know, sell the books and promote the books and uh and we have some of that on film which uh people who are listening I'll I'll probably post it at some point but you're so brave about going right out into public. I mean, Comic-Con is one thing where everybody else is dressing up in cosplay, but you go into yeah. cosplay in the middle of the afternoon down, <laughs> you know, it's like, man, this guy's ballsy. Well, it's, it's, it's weird. We're in the middle of Entertainment Central and then you do something entertaining and people clutch their pearls and they're confused and they don't know what's going on. And we're in, we're, we live in the land of where movies are made. And I go out in a costume and people go, oh, are you in a play? <laughs> I, I've not once have I ever gotten, oh, are you on set? Did you sneak away? Are you on break? No, it's always, they, they never, the idea of that is such a novelty and it's so foreign. But at the end of the day, you know, I've been cursed my entire existence with being surrounded by people who, in my opinion, don't do things big enough. Right. I think everything, and we've had this conversation, but you, multiple times you had to calm me down and say, Chad, it's not in the budget. <laughs> like, <laughs> I yeah. want to do these things, but we need to be, you know, we need to be smart about how we're going to do this. And I think that was, that was primarily why we had so much fun together was because we both would come in with these giant ideas. We both would come in with these, you know, sort of spectacular, giant, elaborate plans. And then you being the seasoned professional would take a step back and say, okay, it's great that we want to do this. What can we actually achieve? And the... the Wow, again, in the Great Gatsby, there's this there's this notion you're of you're I cursed know. with a photographic memory. Go ahead. It's a problem, <laughs> but but there's this there's this notion in in part of the book, the idea of taking a a minimal space but making it feel bigger. So by extension, how could we take these big ideas, make them smaller but keep the the idea of the size? And that was where, you know, you mentioned me taking your books around and and creating presentations. We I, I thought about this, this idea of cross-world promotion between, you know, sort of Wonderland and our world. And if you were to send something from Wonderland here, you know, sort of through the crystal continuum, what would it look like when it came, when it got spat out the other end? And so we, we for, for those of you listening, I, we made these wooden these, these wooden crates that were packed full of straw and bits of paper and the books were packed into them, but they weren't just books. There were like bottles of caterpillar silk. And, um, and there was the, uh, drink me, uh, the different, you know, the blue and the red and there was, a and then there were queen, queen reds, roses, sewing kits. We yeah, did sewing, sewing kits, kits from the millinery. <laughs> Victorian sewing kits. 
And then we nailed them shut with, with coffin nails. And like, there was one where uh, at, at the time, Loot Crate was really, really big. And I went to Loot Crate with one of these, dressed as the Hatter, and I walked in like I owned the place, carrying this, this wooden crate that had been antiqued and beaten up and it was covered in travel stickers, but all of the travel stickers were locations that were relevant to sort of uh, Hatter Madigan's journey throughout his story and um, Alice's story and places in London and stuff like that. And I handed it to the, the, the head of Loot Crate and he looked at it and he spent 40 minutes trying to find a hammer so he could get it open. <laughs> so it, it not only created something that something, you know, by making it difficult for them, by making them go out of their way, it sticks in the memory. Yeah. You know, it's not just, oh, I got a bag full of stuff and it gets put in a corner and forgotten like, you know, so many Comic-Con promotions. No, it's a legit wooden crate. And for two or three years after that, whenever he would post a selfie in his office, the crate was always in the background. It was there. He stuck it in his office and it stayed there. And people yeah. don't do stuff like that. And yeah. I don't understand why. It's just so fun. Yeah. And, and it's so thematic. I mean, as you were saying, we were trying to make the connection, you know, from the Looking Glass Wars, where there's two worlds that you can go back and forth, and that this came as a gift to our world, and you were gifting it, and you were the messenger. Um, you also did, um, when we were promoting um, Hatter Madigan Ghost in the Hat Box, you created those hat boxes where you tied a ribbon, and when you took off the top, the book <laughs> was pulled out of that. I forgot about that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it was like a, it was uh, inspired by a Chinese puzzle box where it, yeah, you un when you opened the hat box and you lifted the handle, the provided handle, it pulled the book up. So it, yeah, it was, so it wasn't just, again, it wasn't just a book sitting, because if you left it in the box, no one's, they're not going to be inspired to pull it out and look at it. It'll get, you know, put somewhere. And so I thought I'm going to be damned if they're not going to see this entire book. But not only that, but the cover, the cover of uh, Ghost in the Hat Box with, with, you know, Young Hatter fighting the big Jabberwock and it's all the that's fractally and pixeled and it's yeah. such a beautiful image it's so beautiful yeah i i, I loved that cover and uh, so you know we use those um boxes uh to send out promotional uh promotional items that you know people could film opening it up and that was uh you know that was very unique and really successful and both of us have that showmanship in terms of presentation and you were really um, specific about what it would look like and the materials and the way you would even tie the bow to the to the to the book and, and add different um, you know sewing kits and things like that. They were all I, I ran across I came across them recently and went, wow, we put a lot of, you put a lot of time and um, specificity into what the look and the feel of these things were. And uh, I always it admired was that. That's so. That's so, it was so cool. It was a gift. It was absolutely, I was so fortunate to land on my feet in LA and work with you because creating these things, I was able to flex my imagination, but also none of that stuff was ordered off of Amazon and showed up the next day. I had to go out into the world and find it. So I'm in this giant city that I'd only been to a handful of times. I don't know where anything is. And I'm, I'm thinking, okay, so how am I going to go out into this world and create these Victorian Wonderlandian items when I have no idea where anything is in L.A.? 
So I drove out all over Los Angeles. I found hobby shops and I found antique shops and I went down into downtown LA and in I'm only able to do the work today that I'm able to do because I had those adventures working with you once upon a time, you know, going out and, and, and learning Los Angeles. And if I hadn't had Google maps, I would have been, I would right, have been. Right, right, right. Well, ha having a, um, having a backlog or having a, a list of vendors, um, you know, is really important and no matter what you're doing. And so, you know, I, I completely get that, but it wasn't just that stuff. It, then it, you know, it came down to, um, you know, those costumes. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The costumes. Oh my gosh. I, so let's tell people, I mean, let, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, before we get into so that people understand what you what you had been creating leading up to coming to Los Angeles in terms of, you know, the kind of kinds of things that inspired you, what um, other designers, you know, what had you been creating that you thought this can work in Los Angeles? So I, when I was in high school, there was a movie that came out called Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events. Sure. Uh, and it's, his his books are phenomenal. The movie is just eye candy, especially if you've got a cheeky Edward Gorey-esque soul. It's just like I, I could gorge myself on that film. And I remember when I was in high school watching it and thinking how badly I wanted to live in that world because mm -hmm. everything is – it's gold and it's cream and it's black and it's it's beautiful and it's gilded and it's functional and it's just it's this such a sumptuous thing but the clothing the clothing looks like it would taste delicious um i mean and i i started becoming more and more obsessed with wanting to look like i came from that world well the the, the clothing that exists in that film some of its period, most of it was made for the movie and none of it exists in, in reality. You have to create it. So I thought, okay, well then I'll, I'll learn how to create it. And the designer of that film is a woman by the name of Colleen Atwood, who is probably the number one costume designer in Hollywood right now. She's mm -hmm. the most sought after. She's also one of the top two scariest women currently living. Um, Who's the top? Uh, v Neil. <laughs> Who's, who is a dear friend of mine, but, um, I was on a red carpet last year, a year ago, two days ago, as a matter of fact, and Colleen Atwood was there and I thought, you know what? Fortune favors the bold. I'm going to, I'm going to introduce myself. And she was not, she was not impressed with anything I had going on. I was dressed as Dr. Strange at the time, which could have been why, but uh, yeah, she, <laughs> <laughs> she was not impressed, but um, I, I, I started looking into what went into the creation of that movie. And when I watched the special features, and she talked about her inspiration. Her inspiration were things that most people would never equate to clothing, N you know, nature, and specifically a book that I have multiple copies of called The Cabinet of um, Albertus Siba. And I'll, if I, oh God, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. But Albertus Siba was a, natu uh, a naturalist who did these ink and, and, and paper and watercolor drawings of the natural world. But the way that he did it and his style, 
is kind of it's like it's it's very Edward Gorey. I'm gonna mention him again. Edward Gorey woodcut kind of spindly esque, and she she mentioned in an interview that those illustrations were the jumping off point for all the textures in the film. Well, there's two ways to do texture. You can do it printed and it's nice and flat. And sometimes that works depending on the character, but ideally you want things to feel fibrous. And when you create an actual costume for a, uh, for a film, it needs to be something that is real. So when you and I talked about well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So I started learning how to do these different techniques and do these different things. And I had made prior to going back to college, I had made this one coat where I was trying to mimic Colleen Atwood's aesthetic. And the way that I made the coat was it was multiple layers of sheer fabrics sitting on top of a solid fabric that were kind of crazy stitched together. And then you burn it away with a blowtorch. So you've got the layers that bristle and pucker and puff out. And so it creates this worn, you know, it looks aged, but it's also weirdly clean. But then if you I discovered later on, if you'd make the multiple sheer layers, different colors, it creates a mood ring effect where it will change, you know, weird things like that, that you can do with fabric. And so I started doing those things. And that was what eventually got your attention was at Denver comic-con we had gone. And I don't remember, I was, I don't remember what costume I was wearing. I did get a picture with you as the Hatter one of the days, but the day that we met, I was something completely different. And, um, you were just so fun and engaging. And you were so kind of fascinated by this weird thing that I was wearing. And that was what got us emailing. Because, you know, I, the story that I just told, it makes it seem like I got here and we met and we were off to the races. No, you and I were communicating for five years prior to me moving out here. And I remember there was one email in particular where you lamented. You're like, it's a shame you aren't here. I could use you, <laughs> but you're not here yet. And I was just like, I'm working on it. <laughs> You know, that was 10 years ago, Frank. Yeah, Isn't that no, insane? I, I know it. It's it's remarkable how much time has gone by. But, um, I mean, that's a really great um, explanation um, leading into one of the reasons that I thought, um, you know, I knew you would do a great job with Red's costume because it's complicated. You know, it's based on a, a piece of concept art, which is there behind you. Um, and uh, with the, with the um, you know, the flesh-eating roses. Um, so to your point, it needed to feel organic from nature, but it had to be wearable. And, you know, you came up with a, a beautiful, um, beautiful costume. And the, the colors shimmered, those different reds, depending on what the light, where, it, what the lighting, it, it worked across all sorts of um, different environments. And, um, you know, the, the person that you found to wear it, she just had that What's her, what was her name? Um, Sonia. Sonia. Sonia Wheeler. And yeah. she was so great. The way she her body moved when she was walking through Comic-Con in that dress. She just, she owned it. But I think she owned it. And the reason I loved it so much is because it was spot on, perfect, uh, you know, image, uh, what you pulled it from, which was um, uh, Vance Kovic was the uh, concept artist. And then I used that as my cover art for uh, seeing red. So it was really important that you hit it out of the park and uh, you certainly did. Well, the interesting thing about red's outfit, when you, when you look at the way she is in the book and you look at the concept art, it's organic, you know, it's the dress needed to feel, it needed to feel dangerous. It needed to be beautiful. It had to move a certain way. And I, the one that I built for you, I based very loosely off of an Alexander McQueen 
uh, dress uh, from that, that was featured in a book called Savage Beauty. And the reason why I went that direction was because give me two words that describe red better than savage beauty. I don't mm -hmm. think there are any. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the dress was done in layers and layers and layers of this crepe. Gosh, what was it? It was like a crepe net lame that was veiny and it was mossy and it was it you know stringing it together in a way where it didn't look worn but it, you know building the clusters of the roses and all the roses on it were silk uh and then their their teeth were glow in the dark sculpy so that should she ever go near a black light they would glow kind of dangerously and and it you know it was it was very much in the idea of it being a beautiful prototype because ideally what I would love to do and I daydream about this is I would love to build an animatronic variant of that dress where the roses open and close. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what was great about Sonia was having conversations with her about the character. She made a playlist of music that was um, grungy and rock and metal and all these things that, that to her personified what was going on inside of Red's mind. And she, when we did the wig, the wig was this beautiful kind of fire engine red wig that cascaded around her and it had this headpiece in it. And, and she wore an earpiece that we tucked inside, inside the wig and we styled the hair to hide the earpiece. So when she was walking around wearing that outfit, she was listening to that playlist hmm. and she, she researched, um, different reptiles and snakes and watched the way that they moved because she wanted red's movements to be inhuman so beautiful and dangerous you know engaging but the closer you get it's kind of unsettling right so as she moved she didn't walk through comic-con she no, slithered she certainly didn't she definitely she, was that makes a lot of sense because she it seemed like she was inspired like nature was with her so absolutely now, yeah, I, all, now I understand why well, and she wanted to be a predator and she flat out said, she said, Chad, if grown men aren't afraid of me, we haven't done this right. And the, <laughs> the wonderful thing about it was when people saw her, they were either enchanted or they were terrified and, and nobody approached her. People approached Alice, people approached Hatter, people, people, uh, uh, the queen of clubs, people went to them, but red. And then on top of that, the dress was made probably a good foot longer than she was tall. And then she wore platform stilettos underneath it. So she was seven feet tall, all put together. And she had a carnivorous rose on her hand and she had the collar of the feathers. And it was just, it was mm, just to think, just again, looks like it would taste delicious. It, it was really, it was really remarkable. And also she spray painted part of the uh, costume, right? Because we had the two versions. One, yeah, and um, describe, and you did both versions, so. We did, yeah. So One she, was PG-13 um, and one was R. <laughs> one was PG-13 and one was R. So the PG-13 one was a leather, like a leather bustier almost that was very, very low cut. And the entire thing was covered in jeweled rose appliques that I, I took, I took a rasp and I kind of shredded them and then worked them back over themselves. So she, her, her bodice felt like an overgrown garden. Mm -hmm. So it kind of lent itself. And then it, um, the skirt has openings. It's kind of asymmetrical at the top. And so we tried to make the bodice fit into that. And, uh, that thing is like a piece of armor. You can, you can put it down and it will stand, stand up. Like up yeah. it's rigid. It's full of, it's filled with boning. And then the R version, uh, which was the one that Sonia really pushed to do. She really <laughs> wanted to do it. She, we make up, um, 
God, there's no other word for it. I don't want to pasties basically, yeah. but we, 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 we put these silicone, um, covers onto her bosom that negated definition and then airbrushed the entire costume onto her. So the red of the gown hit her waist and then it turned into this black scaly texture that went up her torso and kind of ended around the top of her body. And when people look at it, when you look at it, it's, 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 it's perplexing because she is essentially topless. But the way that it was painted, if you give it a single glance, you're never going to tell that that's what's going on. Yeah. But then you look at it again and it just, but again, that lent itself to the idea of the organic shapes that it's yeah. this torso that just turns into this gown. And she looked like a, like a, like a malevolent chess piece almost. It was. And, and that was my favorite image that Vance did. And the um, publisher uh, nixed it. They said it was too provocative. Uh, in the image, uh, let alone what Sonia looked like, and so we. Uh, How Victorian, though. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was it, yes, it was. Uh, it was perfect. So, hey, you know that um, begs an interesting question about cosplay and the reason that people do cosplay, um, and the difference between that and acting or. You know, you're you're sort of embodying the character that has already been established from an actor. So not in this case. In this case, Sonia was the first actress to play the part. And I say actress purposely because she really, you know, with that research that you mentioned, she really was an actress out there. But I see a lot of cosplay at Comic-Con and not everybody is able to do that. Most people just dress up and they walk around like themselves. Um, so, but you and your, you have a league of hatters um, and you've been doing cosplay a long time. Can you give us like a feeling of, you know, the various different folks that do cosplay and what you're, what you're inspiring to embody when you put on Johnny Depp's Mad Hatter or, you know, you have a whole long list of, uh, of characters that you play and costumes you've, you do. So wh where are you coming from when you, when you enter the field of play? Beauty is a really interesting concept. Uh, the, it's, it's so subjective, right? I think a lot of people would universally agree that beauty is a thing that is not only assumed, it also is implied. So most people, when they, when they cosplay, it's because they're looking at an element of the character and a piece of them is saying, I want to be that in some degree. Um, when it comes to me being the Johnny Depp Hatter, I honestly, to the, the Mad Hatter has always been one of my absolute favorite characters for, for whatever reason. I, I've been dressing up as him for Halloween since I was a child and every time a new version comes along, yeah. What is the reason you don't, for whatever reason, but what, what do you think the reason is? I don't know something. I am in, I am attracted to top hats. I love the idea of high tea. <laughs> I think there's a, there's an unbridled element to him. He, I mean, when you read the book, he can stop time and there's, there's, you know, and the thing about the thing that the thing about the book is people think that the tea party is his. It's not the tea party is the March hairs. Yeah. The Hatter is a guest who showed up and never left, and that's never left. And that speaks to me on a deep molecular level. Um, this party crasher who just won't <laughs> go away. 
Um, <laughs> but I, I, it's it's so hard to put a finger on it. It's so difficult because if you ask if you ask someone who cosplays a Disney princess, why did you want to be that princess? They will begin to describe elements of the character's personality, but it always will end with. And also she has a beautiful dress. Mm-hmm. Or if you ask someone, someone why they want to be, you know, Bella Lugosi's Dracula, well, his suit is so beautiful. You know, it always kind of comes down to, you know, people are born naked. Everything else is cosplay. So. <laughs> oh, that's very quotable. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's, it's a riff on something RuPaul said. RuPaul said that we're born naked and everything else is drag. And he's right. Uh. Because when people get dressed in the morning... I always think, what do I want to emulate today? Do I want to be seen or do I not want to be seen? Today I'm wearing clothes to specifically not be seen because I just don't feel like performing. But I have other days where I will put on a pair of blocked, high-heeled men's riding boots. And you've seen me. You know what I dress like. I have. Yeah, frock coats, the whole nine yards. And those are days where I want to feel amazing and I want to feel amazing by looking amazing. And I think that that's what cosplay boils down to is, you know – there's an element of seeing a missing piece of yourself within that character. So you get that piece by becoming them for a while. Oh, that's, but that's interesting. Yeah, I can get that. That's cool. I did a, I did a lecture at uh, Yumicon, which is a, a magnificent convention in Detroit. And the, the, the lecture happened completely by accident because I was supposed to go with a group of people. And when I, to, to do a, uh, a panel on mastering a character, like how do you create, if you're going to perform as well as cosplay, how do you, you know, embody the persona of the being? And I get to Detroit and the rest of the people who were supposed to come didn't show up. So I still had this panel that I had to do. And I go walking into, I, I, rem- I will never forget this. I'm walking toward this room and there's a line of people outside and I say, I'm so sorry, I'll, I'll wrap this up quick so you guys can get to your panel. And they're like, no, we're here to see you. <laughs> and I was mortified because this room fills with 70 people and I'm there with nothing prepared. And what am I going to do? And so it, I, I just kind of began to uh, extemporaneously speak upon the allure of cosplay by looking at a human not as a completed entity, but rather as a thing that must evolve continuously. Because if you ever as a person reach a point where you think, well, I don't need to do anymore, I don't need to read anymore, I don't need to work anymore, I don't need to do these things, you will inherently be incomplete. No one ever stops growing. Right. So so internally, why should we stop evolving? We shouldn't. That's, that's absurd. So if you look at a person as an incompleted jigsaw puzzle, you think, okay, these missing pieces, where are they going to come from? Well, they can come from literature. They can come from film. They can come from music. They can come from bodybuilding. There are so many things that humans do to continue to construct themselves. And to me, cosplay is an element of that. So using that, and this literally just came to me in the moment. So using that as a jumping off point, I said, let's do audience participation. Who here is not afraid to talk? And I got about 20 people who were not afraid. And I said, okay, everyone move the chairs. We we moved all the chairs in the room to the sides. We made a big circle where the people who wanted to talk were in the middle and the people who did not want to talk were on the outside. And I stood in the middle and I went person to person and I said, what are you wearing? What character are you dressed as? What piece of you responds to that character? Because if somebody wants to be the evil queen from Snow White, that doesn't mean their entire body is a murderous entity who will kill someone who is prettier than them. It means that maybe that one moment where she's walking down the tower steps and her cloak billows out and she's this 
fabulous creature. Well, maybe you just want to be a fabulous creature for a day. So I went person to person and it became this thing where at the end, some people were crying and it was again, introspective. And it, 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 it really got to the point of saying people who are detractors of cosplay can look at it and say, that's so lame. Someone else already did that. Do your own thing. Or you can look at it and say, how is that completing you? How is that completing that person? What power, what strength, what energy are you bringing from that character into your own life for a day? It's never permanent. At the end of a day, everyone is so, I am so excited to jump in the shower and get Hatter off of me mm -hmm. because that is so much makeup. It's uncomfortable after a while, but for the first three or four hours that I'm in that costume, it feels like pajamas. It's cozy. It's comfortable. And I am just, I'm wearing his history on me for a moment. I'm borrowing that. I, I, I remember when you were putting the uh, costume on and uh, you were putting all the makeup and you weren't fully complete, but you were in process and you looked in the mirror and then you turned to camera and you said, um, I feel right this is right. <laughs> and, uh, and it, you know, it sort of stuck with me because, you know, as you were creating this, you were in your happy place, you were finding that additional, um, you know, part of yourself. But I'm curious because that's a, you know, I've done a lot of panels and I've done a lot of school uh, events and, um, you know, thinking outside the box as you do and bringing people in and talking to the kids that will talk. And in your case, you know, the adults in the circle. Was there one thing that um, that you remember that stood out about what any of the folks said? Because that's a very vulnerable state um, that people can get in. They might not realize it, but once they stand up in front of folks and then they're surrounded, um, you know, that's that can be intimidating. It can be intimidating. Um, you know, we have been gifted with a list of sins and one of them is pride. And uh, that one may be my favorite. And um, there was one girl who was, uh, she, she was a self-professed plus size model and she was absolutely fabulous. Um, if, if we were in the seventies, the word stacked would be used <laughs> um, to describe her. And she was the first person to speak. When I said, who wants to go first, her hand shot straight up. And she was wearing a Lolita style kind of anime maid outfit that was covered in, it was just dripping with lace. She looked like a dessert. Um, you know, when you see those dresses mm -hmm. that they're so mm -hmm. gilded and they're so beautiful and they're so beautifully made. And she stood up and she, she talked about why she chose that outfit and why she wanted to be that character. And it was from an anime that I had never seen before. And unfortunately, I don't remember the name of it, but it was a character who basically masquerades as one thing, but is actually this fighting machine underneath all of it. Mm -hmm. And it's, she's got that, it's a secret. She's got a secret. So when she becomes this character, she has that secret within her and it's an extra kind of boost. You know, it's a boost of confidence. It's a boost of power. It's a, it's a, it's a boost. And she, she said, you know, I get made fun of online. I got made fun of when I was younger because I'm a bigger person and I had to deal with all of this. And when I found this character, it resonated within me. I found that frequency and it was as if none of that mattered and none of that had happened. It just instantly went away. And that's why I wanted to be this character. And I was just like that, that is why we do this. And, 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 and that, and what you just said and what she said embodies the beauty of Comic-Cons because it's a place 
that it you're free to express yourself and it, it it being different is the whole point and uh not being judged and 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 then the other thing about cosplay is the deep level of creativity that is is there you know creating these these costumes so well it's it's you know the mother of necessity the mother the mother of invention is the, necessity is the mother yeah necessity is the mother <clears throat> Well, necessity is the mother of invention, Franklin, <laughs> and <laughs> that was good. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, you when you when you need something and can't find it, you have to create it. Yeah, and that is a level of ingenuity that a lot of people don't often get. I remember when I was younger, my dad was working on rebuilding part of an engine, and he needed some piece that he couldn't get his hands on, so he made one. He milled it himself out of aluminum, and that always kind of stuck in my head of, oh, okay, if I can't find what I need, I'll make what I need. And, you know, you, as a person who, I turned 40 in three years and I was looking. Who's counting? I know. Who's counting? Only me. Um, No, and placing value in youth means you get poorer every day. But um, I was looking at everything I've done and I was looking at where I wish I were. And, you know, you run into certain problems that you, that are unexpected. And one of the problems I keep running into is a lot of people don't want to hire cosplayers because they think we're reliability. They think that we're just, you know, trying to pilfer secrets about Marvel films or whatever. And so we don't get hired, but it's, it's funny. I hear that I've experienced that. And then I hear horror stories from friends in the industry saying, Oh, we're desperate for stitchers. We're desperate for people who know how to make hats. Nobody knows these skills anymore. And I'm like, there is an army of people who knows these skills and they've taught themselves how to do it. And they're cosplayers. Mm-hmm. You know, people are always complaining about how, oh, they don't they don't make things like they used to. No, they do. You're just not looking in the right places. Mm. And I think that's amazing and beautiful. What what do you I mean, you you think that there's folks out there that look at cosplay as um as a kind of a, a silly, you know, extended Halloween? Is, is that I mean, I, I've only experienced the cosplay in the Comic Cons, and it's a rich subculture that has become really mainstream and representative of all things in pop culture. And when people showed up in, you know, costumes of my characters, that was like a dream when I first started writing, like, oh, maybe somebody would dress up as a character one day. Oh, that'll never, ever happen. And then it happened all the time. And, uh, and so I find it, uh, I find it kind of sad if people don't see, you know, the real, the real value in the, embodying that character and the creativity it takes and the, and the bravery it takes to put that out there. Well, people are always afraid of the things they don't understand. And to them, it's a novelty. People who look at Halloween and think that it's a novelty, probably you're not going to get it. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's kind of sad because when you, when you react to something in that way, you are monumentally limiting yourself. Yeah. And I'm a person who doesn't want to be limited. I'm also a person who's incredibly cripplingly judgy. I'm extremely judgy. My judgy judgmentalness is a holdover from growing up in a small town where I never knew if someone was becoming my friend to make fun of me later on or to hurt me Mm. or if they were becoming my friend because they honestly liked me, Mm -hmm. especially growing up gay. And that's the worst thing you can be in a small town. It doesn't matter. You could be a murderer and people will get over it. But if you're gay, that's the worst thing you could possibly be. So people who look at cosplay and laugh at it, if they don't understand it, 
the problem is not them understand not understanding it. The problem is them not wanting to. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that is an issue. That's an umbrella issue with all of, you know, all of America, all of, all, the world, the really. world, well, yeah. maybe not the world. Maybe, yeah. Well, the world. Yeah. Um, Mark Twain has a beautiful quote that I don't, I'm going to paraphrase where he talked about how travel is the antidote to, um, Gosh, not xenophobia, uh, prejudice. Travel is the antidote to prejudice is basically what he was saying. And it's true. There are people in my hometown who have never left it, who are, who have never experienced the rest of the world and they don't understand these things. And it's only through experience that you gain knowledge. So if you experience the cosplay and you experience the joy that comes with it, they're not hurting anyone, yeah. first of all. And second of all, what I do with my body really isn't any of your business right also so why look at it and immediately react negatively i i did a panel this past summer at comic-con with a group of industry costume designers and there were four of them and three of them were just overjoyed to be there and they were so enchanted by the cosplay and one of them is the costume designer of moon knight and because she was on this panel, the room filled with Moon Knight cosplayers, and she engaged and interacted with every single one of them. She gave them tips. She gave them advice. She gushed over how brilliant the, their costumes were. She she talked about how um, building the one for the show was this nightmare because they had to figure out this, this execution for doing it. But then looking at how these people had done theirs, they had thought of ideas that made it work and it was just it was brilliant to watch and she and i have kept in touch since then and i follow her on instagram she's amazing her name uh i don't know what her instagram handle is but um she follows a bunch of moon knight cosplayers on instagram and she's constantly reposting the stuff they post to celebrate it because right. she didn't look at it as you're there's a i'm not going to say the name but there is a costume designer in hollywood who hates cosplay because their philosophy is i've already done it why are you doing it why are you imitating yeah you're an yeah. imitator i learned how to imitate because it taught me those skills and right. now if somebody comes to me you know i just did i just did a halloween costume for travis barker because he and and i think chloe kardashian is is who he's married to but they wanted to be edward scissorhands and kim from edward scissorhands and I sat down and I built the Edward Scissorhands costume using entirely techniques and procedures that I learned from doing other things by mimicking things that I had seen. Right. Because that was the best way to learn how to do them. And a lot of people don't think of it in those terms. And in instead of getting upset that they've done it, why not marvel at how? That's what I'm way more interested well, in. Well, and you know, you just had an experience on TikTok where you were dressed up as Doctor Strange and uh, Benedict uh, came over and uh reached out and acknowledged you i i don't know if you had a you know a relationship with port but he saw you the video's great he comes over and uh like hey i have to stop whatever i'm doing i gotta go talk to dr strange because he's here he okay so that was the third oh god this is gonna make me sound so entitled and privileged and i recognize that i got invited to the premiere of infinity war to be seat filler as a Doctor Strange cosplayer, because at the time there weren't a lot. Then I got invited back to Endgame only because I was at Infinity War. And at both of those premieres, Benedict came over and had a conversation. He didn't just sign something and move on. He stood there. His people were trying to like usher him forward and he wouldn't move. He's like, I'm having a conversation. And we chatted. So when he came over in this, this TikTok video, it's seven seconds and it's got four million views make that make sense but he um he comes over 
And he, he, he again stood there and we had, and he recognized me. He remembered who I was. He's like, I'm so glad you're here. It's great to see you again. And then he said, Ooh, you've upgraded your, your, your cloak. And I'm like, yeah, I changed it. I made wow. it a little bit better. Yeah. He recognized all of that. He's absolutely, he is exactly what you want him. My to friend be. Cassidy, who, you know, uh, has done stunts for Marvel and she's worked with him. And she, she also is like, he is just the absolute, he's got a photographic memory. He he remembers everyone. He's nice to everyone. He's there to work. He doesn't really goof off, but like he is what you want him to be. And and that's wonderful. And yeah, that experience entirely happened because I was dressed as Doctor Strange. And he, the other thing that, that was so sweet of him to say, I'm wearing the yellow leather gloves from the comics and he didn't get to wear them in the movies. He wears them for a moment at the end of, of his first movie, but he hasn't had them since. And he he took my hand and he's looking at them and he just goes, you know, these are nicer than the ones they gave me, but I wish they'd bring them back. I love these gloves. They're so lovely. That's why he goes like, the, he wiggles his fingers oh, when he walks up to me because he's talking about the gloves. That's great. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, it's I mean, so that's sweet. a full-on conversation. I mean, that yeah. is fully engaged human to human. Yes, and what was really charming was when he walked away, the people who were standing next to me were friends of mine that I was there with, but some other people were like, "Do you are you friends with him?" I said, "No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm definitely not friends with him." But he I'm very fortunate to have ended up in some circumstances where I've gotten to have a conversation with him and gotten to chat with him. And he he is another one who's just very appreciative of his of his fans and of the Doctor Strange character. And and it's it was it's, it's remarkable. Yeah, it's it's it, you know, we had the similar experience or I've had an experience and you had it with uh, Whoopi Goldberg who, uh, you know, is a big Alice in Wonderland fan. Not only did she do the TV show, but she, uh, the statue um, in Central Park, she does the voiceover. So you go up, if you go to the statue, there's there's a recording and it's uh, Whoopi Goldberg, which I did not know about until we went to New York to film The View. But she loves all things Alice. And, and so, you know, I did this, as you might remember, I did this Kickstarter campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that you could purchase for $500 is you could become a character in the book, your likeness. And so she bought it uh, for the $500, but she used her real name, which is Karen Johnson. So I had no idea who it was, I kept saying, hey, Karen, can you send me a picture? I don't can't draw something without a picture. And uh, and finally, she sent the picture. I go, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute, you're Whoopi Goldberg? And she goes, and I'm a huge fan of yours. And so then in New York Comic Con, I was meant to go meet her, and we organized it. And um, uh, a friend was filming it before I showed up, and she goes, I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous, I might break out in tears. And I'm walking up going, what? What? What is Whoopi Gold? Is she talking about me? And uh, and sure enough, we, you know, we hugged and we kibitzed and, and we had fun. And, and then off camera, she said, hey, whatever, what do you need? I'd, I'd like to do something with you. Like we maybe we do an animated film or we could do something. And I said, how about come on your show? And she goes, oh, yeah. Oh, I can definitely do that. And so uh, and I knew she was a big fan of cosplay. So, uh, so the, for the listeners to know that, uh, so she became a character, the queen of clubs in the book. And then she invited me to come on to the view to promote the, um, young Hatter book series, which was, um, 
Ghost in the Hatbox, and re to reveal the cover art. But then the secret weapon was you guys to bring the characters to life. And I made a joke about that on the show that, you know, when you write something for 20 years, they follow you around. And sure yeah. enough, you guys came, you came out. But I remembered it was so much fun, your enthusiasm and excitement. Um, and then what you built for her, uh, how you built that costume. And so she had the representation of the queen of um, uh, clubs. And then you built those shoes. I mean, and then you wrote her a letter, which I have somewhere, and it goes on and on and on. Well, she is, I am not surprised in the slightest that that was what she said to you when she met you is, hey, let's do something because she did the same thing to me oh. when we were backstage. Oh, yeah. She, she, um, she, when we were backstage after filming, uh, and you introduced us. She looked at me and she goes, you made all these? I said, yeah, I, I did all of this. And she took my hand and she said, I will wear anything you send me because we need to make you a designer. And I thought, well, that's just the greatest thing ever. And I never capitalized on it because I was so afraid of looking like a leech or a mooch. And every now and then I think about that and I kick, it's one of my, I only have three large regrets in life. And that's one of them is that I never followed up on that. Because I know for a fact, if I had sent her something, she definitely would have worn it. And it's it's her entire persona and aura is one of giving and one of reciprocity. And so for her to play the queen of clubs and kind of embody the idea of a person working, I don't want to give too much away, but a person working toward the greater good and working with, you know, certain great thinkers and stuff like that, it's totally, it's totally on brand for Whoopi. And she's just... When she looks at you over the top of her glasses, you know you're seen. <laughs> I love Whoopi. She's such a delight. And and she uh, she had those shoes the shoes on. So you oh made my God. The, you so, made those shoes for her. And so she that was a so highlight. Those shoes were uh, the base shoes were made by American Duchess. They were a black French court shoe that I then put embroidery and crystals and beadwork. And I I went out and found uh, club shaped silver cabochons and put them all together and bling them up. And I, I specifically went with American Duchess because they have a last of her foot. They can make her, because they, they've made her shoes before. So by working with them, I was able to skip a lot of very difficult um, steps because I knew the shoes would fit. I knew they'd be comfortable and I knew she'd like them. And so that was why I went that direction. And um, her shoe collection is nuts. And I remember being in the office <laughs> for for a couple of months after we filmed, after we sent her the shoes, we were in the office and every day, Lucas and I would put on the view and we were like, is she wearing the shoes today? Is she wearing the <laughs> shoes today? Is she wearing the shoes today? And I will never forget the first time she wore them because she walked out, there was a quick shot of them and I completely lost my mind. Um, yeah, well, you should have. But I, I did remember that uh, you were going to build her some sort of um, jacket or what I was designed, it? I designed a winter coat for her. That's right. And then I, yeah, you sent it to me and we were talking about it and I still have the fabric for it. And I, I, it's, I would, I would rather do it now than then because my sewing skills have gotten better. Um, but it, yeah, right when I was planning on doing that, I ended up in a situation where I kind of had to move last minute, which then turned into six months of me moving oh. a lot. And it just, it ended up, life kind of got in the way and I don't, I, I lost her contact info and it just, it, I, in fact, I don't even think I ever had it actually. Um, well, I can, I can help you out with that, my friend. We'll talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, so we did, we had red, we had the club of, uh, I mean the queen of clubs and, uh, then one of my favorites 
And not just because the costume, which the costume was spectacular, but was Bibwit Hart. Oh, yes. Because Richie, Richie Lillard, is that his last name? So, he is. How did he that? How does he do it? So okay, so he recently um, he recently changed his name. His full name now is uh, Richard Lale Lillard, and because uh, he rebranded, and he's he when you talk about when you talk about the consummate performer, he, he oh my gosh, I don't even know how to put into words how utterly spectacular. He is. And I actually, a a couple of days ago, I had a conversation with him because I said, hey, um, Frank's been trying desperately to get a hold of me and I keep missing him and I feel terrible about it. And and we just, for about an hour, he's in New York right now. He moved to New York and, and hopefully he comes back because I miss him terribly. But he's he's sitting in this arm, this Victorian armchair, dressed in a Victorian suit, having a cup of tea and we're Zooming so I can I can see him. And we just started talking about him playing Bibwit and just the, again, the research. He did the research. He not only researched the character within the books, but he researched um, uppity school marms from the period. He's like, not an instructor. No, it needs to be an uppity school marm and how they would act and carry themselves. And then when we made that costume and I went and picked out the fabrics and I brought them to you, 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 you were so happy. You were so pleased. You loved the colors. You loved the textures. You loved the details, the idea of it. We had that wig built. We built the beard, the, the sideburns, we built all of it. And he came in with a set of ideas already kind of concrete of what he wanted to do. But then he put the costume on and it evolved and it became this, this character who has no self-awareness whatsoever and thinks they're saying these quippy intellectual things, but he's accidentally making these euphemisms that are horrifying. (laughs) And it makes it funny because he has no idea what he's saying. And just, he was so quick witted. So quick. quick. It's shocking. So quick. And it was brilliant watching him play. And once he was in it with the chains and the little glass, the glasses were what sealed it. Who's who found the glasses? Was that I did. You did because that 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 was that was the final piece too. Because I did a I did a little filming with him, and he didn't. We didn't have the glasses, and it just wasn't quite the same. He was obviously quick witted, but um, we need those glasses. So well, the, the glasses came from my personal collection, which is why they weren't with the costume. I still have mm, them. Okay, so maybe maybe I maybe. need to find. I should source you a yeah. pair so you have yeah. some because those for, for for those of you I'm sure while we've been talking um you guys have googled images the the your intrepid listeners but the glasses that he's wearing are are called pans gnaw it's spelled pincenez but it's pronounced pans gnaw but they're these little lenses that clip onto your nose because there was a brief period in time where to have glass to have black glasses <laughs> Frank is wearing some right now, but to have to have framed glasses was considered uh, unfashionable. Yeah. So they tried so hard to make them so you could still see, but keep them hidden. Mm-hmm. So they're these rimless little glasses that just clip right on your face, and and they're they're so. I think they need to come back into style. I find them so fashionable. And, and, and I think we're going to have to do another podcast with you and and uh richie playing bibwit i i I just think we need to have a conversation about alice i mean bibwit heart is an anagram of white rabbit so uh you know he he seems to be able to embody both at the at the same time you know we recently lost um leslie jordan yes we interacted with on on the set of con Con? man Mm. 
And there was one day that we, when all of the, the one day where all of the characters were there, you had, uh, you had Hatter, Alice, we had Red, Bibwit, uh, me as Dodge, and, and everyone was, was there. Richard Lale was sitting in a chair in the lobby of that bizarre hotel they were filming at. That yeah. place made no sense, but, um, that was industry sit- Hills. Is that where that was? Industry Hills, yeah. It was so weird because we I was I remember driving through like but, machinery yeah, and like Riverside, and, Riverside yes. and then and then up and then on out a out of nowhere yeah, up on a this, hill. This <laughs> citadel just comes out of nowhere and there's all these wealthy people with their noses in the air and I'm just like why are you here? But he was sitting in a chair and and Beverly Leslie approached him and Richard Lale was was reading one of his prop was reading one of his prop books that he brought with him. And I will never forget the look. He he had big fake eyebrows on and he just looked at Beverly or at uh, Leslie Jordan. He just went and gave him this, <laughs> this you're talking to me look. And it was so bibwit of him to do that. And I wish that there was a recording of the two of them yeah. interacting because le- talk about quick witty, oh. the two of them. Yeah. It and was, he it was really, a joy to watch. he really became a sensation at the end of his life. The last, you know, five six years, he he was when he started his, you know, uh, I guess it was his Instagram or his Twitter account. I mean, he it was, was quarantine updates. Yeah, he was yeah. he was just being Hilarious. like, well, "Howdy, everyone! This is yeah. what I'm doing." And it's yeah. that was so deserved, so deserved. And that was fun doing Con Man and um, and being on the set. And, uh, you know, there was the when when uh, Bibwit came out in the audition following Red, uh, you know, <laughs> prancing around completely lost. So in Con Man, there was uh, there was uh, uh, a competition for casting um, cosplayers. And uh, so they had a bunch of cosplay folks. And and so we put Red and uh, and Bibwit up and he, of course, made a spectacular entrance and, um, and, and exit. He was, he he is amazing. So I would love, love, love to have him on the show. And, uh, Oh, I'm sure we can arrange that. Absolutely. I mean, he would probably love that. Um, and then let's not forget, um, the most popular character in my book, uh, the Mad Hatter as Hatter Madigan, because, um, you know, the, the coat that you put together, which I was sometimes, uh, played, um, Hatter and then the hat, and you found the guy who actually could create the blades, so they would, and they were, they, they, they were, it was real. I mean, those yeah. blades would come out, the hat would collapse, and that became an amazing pro. pro so prop, you, you prop. presented me, you presented me with that beautiful piece of concept art of Hatter on the streets of New York, and it's windswept, and he's he's oh, in yeah. mid hat throw. And so translating that into a real costume was extremely difficult because uh, a lot of times when concept designers create things, they're not creating it thinking this is wool, this is silk, this is polyester. They're Mm -hmm. not thinking in those terms. They're thinking of what suits the character, which is exactly how costume designers think. So looking at that image and thinking, how am I going to do this? I remember the waistcoat, his, his vest had this beautiful, really intricate pattern on it. And I thought, how the hell am I going to execute that? And the way that I did it was I took sheets of faux, red faux leather that had a kind of Victorian wallpaper design already in it. And I 
hand etched it with a wood burner. I, I actually cut openings into it and then I backed it with a layer of satin so that when you look at it, it, it looks like the image. And then his coat had metal fittings and it had all this water damage and the whole thing was made to kind of be somewhat permanently wrinkled because he's always jumping in and out of puddles. So the idea of him having uh, residual water damage was really important. And then that hat, that hat, the person who made that hat, a gentleman who, uh, an associate of mine by the name of Igor Pinsky, who is probably the most brilliant prop maker I've ever met, apart from Adam Savage. And I, I called him up and I said, I need, I need a top hat that can collapse and it, I need blades to then come out of the brim so that it can be thrown as a weapon. And there was a pause on the other end of the line. <laughs> and he just goes, uh-huh. <laughs> and then he says, how, how, how soon do you need this? And I believe that was like January. I said, we just need it by the summer for, for Comic-Con if we can figure that out. And I don't rem I don't know how he did it. He found an antique collapsible top hat because there was a period in time where you, you couldn't wear a top hat at the opera. So they made them collapsible. You'd collapse it and then you'd slide it into a shelf under your seat. Hmm. And so he found one that was in terrible condition, but the mechanics were intact. And so he took that and then he devised this gear system where there's this little tiny dial on the side of the brim that you slide it with your thumb and four blades that were chromed, these chromed plastic blades slide out. And when, when he and I were talking about what it needed to be, I said, I think, I think, I think Hatter really needs to embody all of the, you know, the suits of a, uh, a card deck. And so diamonds and hearts and clubs and, and whatnot are, um, intrinsically woven into every element of Hatter Madigan's costume. So his boots, his big boot covers have hearts and clubs mm -hmm. and diamonds and mm -hmm. spades in them. His wrist guard with the blade that comes out. Mm -hmm. Also, it has, it has functioning gears on it, but the gears are part of clubs and, you know, things like that. And then the hat blades had the same thing. So the idea that the millinery, you know, creates bodyguards and assassins and, you know, whatnot for, the the royal families of of wonderland all of them were reflected within that design and i don't know how he did it his brain works on a frequency that if you were to listen to i'm sure would sound like old school dial-up even though he's got a rotacious intellect hmm. um just brilliant absolutely brilliant so brilliant one of the top three scariest men uh, currently living and um <laughs> i just yeah he built that hat and i will never i will never forget when i brought it to you and i said okay frank look at this and i collapsed it and the blades popped out and you just stared at it because it was as if this thing that you had created in a book that you never thought you'd see in real life had somehow broken through the veil and was now in front of you. Yeah, it was, it was just, it was a spectacular moment. It was burst in front of me and, uh, so beautiful. And, and on the view, when Brandon deployed the hat on the view, it just on camera chef's kiss. Yeah. Yeah. He did a, he did a fantastic job as he moved towards the audience and kind of towards camera. And then the hat opens up. That was, that was very, that was very dramatic. So, so because this is, um, uh, a podcast about all things Alice and the the burning question is what is it about Alice that has allowed Alice to exist for now 157 years 
What say you? Oh my goodness. Um, at the very beginning of this conversation, we touched on the idea that it's a very linear, straightforward story, but within it, one can pull many things out of it. And before we started recording, you and I were kind of discussing how for some reason at this time of year, a lot of people begin to kind of look at their lives and they begin to look at, you know, the, the bizarre chaos that is life. And Alice is a character who is existing within chaos and she, she is finding a way through it. She's figuring out who she is by process of elimination. And she becomes, if you'll pardon the, if you'll pardon the, the, the expression, she almost becomes a looking glass through which we can view ourselves because she's constantly presented with situations that nothing in her life has prepared her to deal with. And we as human beings are experiencing the same things on a nearly daily basis as, and life is becoming more fictional the, uh, the longer it goes right. nowadays. Right. Um, and I think that that's, I think that that is the enduring quality is that subconsciously we are able to see ourselves within her. We are able to recognize the scared Victorian child who's being repressed and, and yeah. seeking, seeking whimsy, you know, kind of inside of ourselves, whatever that means to you. And right. I, <laughs> I think that's the appeal is that it has been reimagined so many times because it so perfectly lends itself to do that. And that I think is why it has endured is because so many people can look at it and interpret and, it in a different way. I mean, and because, reflect it. Yeah. yeah. Because some people look at it as whimsy, you know, fantasy, and some people look at it as a, you know, as a horror story, as a nightmare. Um, and the very thing that is, um, that produces appeal and wonder in the book also terrifies people. Um, and, and interesting because when we first started, we were talking about being retrospective and, and, um, one of my favorite quotes in, in the book is, um, it's no use looking back to yesterday because I was a different person then, which, you know, is all about that identity crisis that she's going through, um, what's real and what's not. But at the same time, it's really sort of a message that we all carry. You know, if someone has trauma, you know, it's how do we get over it? It's, it's past, the past is over. And it's the ability to learn and to grow and to evolve, as you said in this and during our speak, talking, like, you know, you, we all want to be evolving. And this book represents something for everybody, not only for every person that reads it, but generationally it keeps changing. So depending on what decade you're in, it represents, you know, the, the, the 60s psychedelic aspect of what the book is. Or, you know, in Matrix, the technological aspects of, you know, what um, is a dream and what is reality? Yeah, exactly. Which is yeah. really interesting. And that's, and, and that book is so pliable. So, um, I mean, if you really want to bring the conversation full circle, you look at our conversation about cosplay and I was a different person yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. See, ah, the, we're, we're brilliant men, <laughs> Frank. <laughs> in, in wrapping this up, I, I, I can't help but, um, uh, flash on an Apple commercial that was done in 1998 or nine. And uh, Steve Jobs had just come back to Apple and was right, trying to re, you know, um, come up with a new marketing. Like he wanted to throw all the, you know, it's not the box that we're building. What does Apple represent? And that was his mission. We need our brand. And he was 
thinking about Nike as so great at branding and using, you know, athletes. They never talk about the shoes. It's just they represent athletes. And when we started this conversation and you were talking about your inspiration and, and that you felt you were, as a kid, different, um, and everything that you had to say, I thought, you know, Chad should have been in that commercial called Think Different, where Apple had all these great, some alive and some that had passed away, um, some that used computers, some that didn't, but Think Different. And that brand of, of uh, that brand marketing, I feel like that's what's made, that makes you who you are because you think different. And I have to agree. One of my favorite quotes, and I don't remember who said it, and I need to, I need to work on that. But one of my favorite quotes is that, you know, reasonable people are not the ones that, that change the world. You only change the world by being unreasonable because if you're reasonable, then you're going to deal with whatever's going on. But if you're unreasonable, you'll want to change it. And yeah, you only, you can only create change by thinking differently. Yeah. And, um, I've, I have been unfortunate in my life to be stuck with lots of people who think the same and I've never gotten along with them because I just don't like the idea of permanence. I think things should evolve. And, and I, I, you know, if that involves taking some magic mushrooms from time to, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> if, if it involves, you know, it, you know, looking at the drink me bottle and saying, well, I don't know what this will do, but let's find out. So be it. Right. That's. So what, um, what, uh, what are you hoping to do in, um, in the new year in terms of your, in your work and, um, you know, in your cosplay and your creative endeavors? I'm hoping I'm hoping to figure out what the heck I want to do with the rest of my life hmm. because okay. I came out here wanting to be a costume designer and I've realized that what I want to do is tell stories and that the avenue for that had been costume design because you, you do tell a story, mm -hmm. you know, when, it, when you look at a character on screen before they open their mouth, their costume tells you exactly who they are before they speak. And that is one avenue for storytelling, but it's become much more of a literal ambition where now I've got... I have a I have a pirate trilogy that I want to write that involves time travel. I've got the book about dreams and nightmares that you and I talked about that I want to do. I have an entire Wizard of Oz pantheon that I have created, taking L. Frank Baum's original books and saying, okay, if we jump into the future, where would Oz have been based on the decisions of the characters? You know, all these different things that I want to do. And I just I I I am very aware that I may not have time to do everything. So my goal for 2023 is to figure out what I want to do and then to do it. Yeah. I, I think you're onto something with, um, with the stories and, you know, your writing. And, uh, I, I would really encourage you to pick one of those. And for me, when I started, um, you know, I, I, I didn't like to be accountable, so I didn't tell anybody. So if I just drifted along for a few months, it would, wouldn't be a big deal. Um, but the key was, was finishing. It was like, okay, how do I just, you know, even if it's in a drawer somewhere, um, with no expectation, but I just have to finish it. So, you know, picking one of those things, um, and then, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll work together for another decade and, uh, maybe I can help you get the book published. It will be fabulous. I would love all of that. I, we keep talking about doing it and I kept goofing off and I am ready to stop goof. 
I am ready to um, focus. Not ready. Focus. I'm ready to focus. I'm still going to goof off, but yeah. I'm ready to focus. Yeah, you can do both. You can still <laughs> live can your both. life and have a lot of fun, and you can do everything you're doing. You just need to carve out a couple of hours, you know, each day. So, um, well, it's been so much fun talking about this and reconnecting. And absolutely, we have to get um, Richie and his character Bibwit because he did uh, he did elevate the art of cosplay above and beyond anything I've experienced. Um, so of course he's a character. I, um, I remember in con, in con man, the first time I turned and saw him and went, Hey, I created you. It was, it was so weird. It was like, suddenly he was right there, three dimensional. So let's do that. Absolutely. I agree entirely. And thank you so much for having me. You know, I love, I love hanging out with you. I, I truly do. We don't do it as much as we should, but it's, it's been absolutely wonderful. Well, uh, long live Alice, all of them, and, uh, and your Mad Hatter. Have a great holiday. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, bro. I love you, Frank. We'll yeah, talk love to you, you soon. Too. Bye-bye. You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on... The Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive? She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew?